0: Stanford University. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome tonight uh, to the second event of the Iranian Studies Program lecture series for this winter quarter at Stanford University. My name is Amir, and tonight I have the pleasure of introducing our very special guest, Dr. Paul Rivlin. Dr. Rivlin is currently a Senior Research Fellow at the Mushadion Dayan Center for Middle Eastern and African Studies at uh, Tel Aviv University. He studied at Cambridge, London, and what we like to call at Stanford, the Stanford of the East. Um, (laughs) He has also taught courses on Middle Eastern economies and international oil markets at Emory University, Tel Aviv, and the Ben-Gurion University. He's the author of a number of wonderful books um, and papers on Middle Eastern economies, including The Dynamics of Economic Policy um, in Egypt, The Israel Economy, uh, economic policy and performance in the Arab world, and many more. Tonight, Dr. Dob- Rivlin will be speaking about, the social, uh, about social contact in Iran, um, specifically on the Iranian economy. Before we start the lecture, I would like to thank uh, Mr. Hamid uh, and Ms. Christina Magaddam for their generous contributions to the Iranian Studies Program that have made events like this possible. And I would actually like to invite you all to attend our future events Um, this quarter, um, including the next one which is on February 23rd, Um, it is a, it is at the same place, it's called Persian and Pakistan, many dimensions of a cultural relationship, specifically looking at the relationship between um, the Iranian culture and Pakistan. Um, Lastly, please join me in uh, in, in welcoming Dr. Rivlin at, at Stanford University, please.
1: Good evening. Um, I'm delighted to be here in Stanford. And I'd like to thank Professor Milani for inviting me to speak. I'd also like to thank Persang for making the arrangements that included answering and dealing with numerous emails. She dealt with them with great patience and courtesy. Um, I'd like to look at the economics underlying the power structure in Iran. I'll make a number of calculations and indicate the results here. These calculations are provisional and they need a lot of refining, but I believe they show some general trends. My aim is not only to throw light on economic developments in Iran, insofar as that is possible, but also to indicate how far how far these trends are sustainable. Um, that is, I think, of particular interest to people in the United States. The title for this talk was chosen before the June 2009 elections when Iran looked more democratic or less undemocratic than it looks today. In her 2009-2006 book Nikki Keddie stated that Iran was not a dictatorship but either that has changed or as I suspect it was never true. It's clear since the election that Iran is ruled more by force than by social contract but the idea of a social contract is a useful one in analyzing the power structure and how it's developed. In fact, the social contract built before the election has been the basis of the regime's survival since then. Perhaps the most important characteristic of the social contract is that the state authority is derived from the people. This is in contrast to the divine right of kings, that was abandoned in England during the glorious revolution of the 17th century and in other countries much more recently. In Hobbes' famous phrase, the lives of individuals in the state of nature, before the social contract, were solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. They exist in a state of nature where self-interest and the absence of rights and contracts prevented society from flourishing. Life was anarchic, Without leadership or the concept of sovereignty, individuals in the state of nature were apolitical and asocial. The social contract developed when individuals came together and ceded some of their individual rights, if they had them, so that others would cede theirs. This resulted in the establishment of society and, by extension, the state, a sovereign entity which was designed to protect these rights and regulate social interactions. We can see the Iran of the period up to June 2009 as one governed on the basis of a social contract with elements of divine right preserved. There are elections, and even if they're fraudulent, this suggests the need to base the political order in part on the participation of the people. The office of the supreme leader, who is not elected by the people, has something in common with the divine right, more divine than regal. Under Iran's social contract, there was something for all the main power groups, and they would accede to the implicit contract as long as they did not feel threatened. The elections of June last year threatened the equilibrium. Of course, the desire of large sections of the electorate for change reflected their dissatisfaction with political and economic aspects of the existing order. So the first difficulty we have is to identify the main power groups. It's a cliche to say that Iranian politics are complex, but that statement is true. First, the normal structures are numerous. There is a supreme leader a president, a parliament, expediency council, guardian council, assembly of experts, head of judiciary. In fact, for a non-American, it's almost as complicated as trying to understand your government setup. Then there's the question of where power lies. I repeat what I just said there. Who decides what and when? I would suggest that power has been moving towards the Islamic Guards, or Pestaran for years. The events following the election amounted to the removal of a screen that prevented us, or some of us, from seeing where power lay. Of course, there are plenty of people in the West, including some Iranian émigrés, in the academic community in particular, who do not want to admit this. Those who stood to lose from the election of a reformist president turned over the election result, and then used force against the demonstrators. Despite or because of this, Ahmadinejad has support in the electorate. He had and he has. He and those around him draw their strength from groups that have benefited from the policies that they have followed. And I'd like to outline some of the policies and institutions that provide the basis of support for the regime at least until the June elections. This I hope will enable us better to understand what is now happening in Iran. There are four overlapping institutions that I would like to consider. The first is this one. The government in Iran, like in other states in the Middle East, and including the regime that preceded the Islamic Republic, expanded the bureaucracy so as to provide jobs and ensure loyalty. Between 1977 and 2002, the size of the civil service quadrupled. The number of state employees rose from 1.7 million in 1976 to 3.5 million in 1986 and 4.5 million in 1996. The war against Iraq resulted in a rise in state employment, both military and civilian, and its end, the end of the war in 1988, saw a fall. But we still have a very, very large public sector. The second institution is the complex called the bonyards. These bodies generate employment, They avoid accountability. They allocate huge resources to those favored by the regime. The largest of these is the foundation of the oppressed and war veterans. With more than 200,000 employees and 350 subsidiary companies, it had an estimated value of more than $3 billion, at least 10% of the gross national budget. The bonyads under the Islamic Republic are the continuation of informal and extra-legal economic networks that existed during the Shah's regime. The Pahlavi Foundation under the Shah, for example, was the direct predecessor of such Islamic bonyads um, as the Mustazafan Foundation, after the Shah's overthrow, the Pahlavi Foundation's assets were taken over by the newly created Mustafa Zafan Foundation. Two important bonyards which were not controlled by the Islamic guards but are influenced by it are the ones that I've just referred to and the Foundation of Martyrs and Veteran Affairs. The Mustafa Zafan is the largest foundation in Iran and well integrated into the economy. It operates as a non-governmental organization, although it is directly supervised by the supreme leader who appoints its director. The current director is the former head of the Ministry of Defense and Armed Forces Logistics and a former officer in the Guard. According to one of the foundation's directors, It allocates 50% of its profits to providing aid to the needy in the form of low-interest loans or monthly pensions and uh, invests the rest in its various subsidiaries. It owns and operates, as I've said, 350 subsidiaries affiliated companies in numerous industries including agriculture, industry, transportation, and tourism. And its largest subsidiary is the Agriculture and Food Industries Organization that itself owns another 115 companies. It has contract work, uh, construction, engineering, uh, and most famously um, is responsible for the construction of Terminal 1 at the Imam Khomeini International Airport. It has a long history of soliciting contract work abroad and currently maintains economic connections with countries throughout the Middle East, Russia, other parts of the former Soviet Union, and so on. Now there's a lot of literature about the bonyards, and so I'm going to um, leave it at that, but the problem that we have is to analyze, to understand how Uh, they add up. In other words, we know about a contract here and we know about a deal here and we know about a subsidiary here. What we do not know by the very nature of things is what is the totality of this group of organizations. How much of the economy they control, how much of the economy they're involved with. And this is very important because this large sector of the economy is operated without accountability. So there is a a very important area for further research um, and not an easy one uh, to to quantify, but that is actually what needs to be done. The third institution uh, is of course the Islamic Guard, the Pastoran and the Basij. And these are organizations that really have their origins in providing an alternative to the army The Islamic regime understood from the Shah and his experience in office and as he lost power that relying on the army was unwise. And so the regime created numerous other military and paramilitary organizations. And this is very common in the Middle East, but not to the same extent by any means. The guards have now become a dominant group in Iran and have staged what might be called a coup d'etat, in fact, the takeover has been going on gradually over time. One of the main questions to be answered is how this group came to play such a dominant role in Iranian society, polity, and economy. It's ironic that President Rafsan Jani played a crucial, and now we can say, an ironic role in the development of the guards. In the late 1980s, his main economic aim was to reform the economy and restart economic growth after the disasters of that decade. This is the decade of war and revolution. He recognized that the guards were a major force in Iran. And because of their scale and role as quasi-military bodies, he wanted them to play a more useful economic role and he wanted to provide them with incentives. And in the words of Ali Ansari, he mercantilized them. But to use a phrase of another famous economist, Cornay, he used what is called a soft budgetary constraint. The incentives to demand more rental incomes from the government were stronger than those to reform and develop economic enterprises, which is what the president wanted the guards to do. This did not mean that the guards did not become mercantilized. Mercantilized means that in a sense they enter the economy. They did, but their method was to capture the government and obtain assets from it rather than create new ones. This capturing of rents has been a dominant economic mechanism in many Middle Eastern countries. In Iran, it was not simply the movement of assets or power from one sector of the economy to another. It represented the hiding of economic activity and power on a huge scale. We do not have a full inventory of what the guards own or control, but every few months, there are reports of another so-called privatization, takeover, or huge deal that indicates that another sector of the economy has been swallowed by this mafia-like body. The latest was a so-called privatization in October 2009 of the state telecommunications monopoly that was taken over by the guards. It's increasingly clear that the government has become an offshoot of the guards. This is somewhat ironic because they were set up to protect the regime. They were mercantilized to make them less of a burden and in recent years have taken over large sections of the economy, including military production. And, of course, they are involved in the atomic program. When the regime that subsidized them and enabled them to take economic power came under threat in June of last year, Because of political as well as economic, social economic factors, the guards fought back literally and metaphorically and became much more explicitly the guardians of the government, the guardians of the regime. The fourth institution that I want to look at is the use of subsidies by the government. Ostensibly to benefit the poor but in practice to benefit many others. This has been done through explicit and implicit subsidies of three main kinds. The first is the credit subsidy, the second was that on foreign exchange that's been largely eliminated, and the third is that on oil and other fuels including electricity. The credit subsidy Results from government intervention in credit markets, I just want to say that um, I have tried not to enter into complex economic arguments. I just made the artificial assumption that the audience would not consist of m- just economic students, but it would be crazy for me to ignore the uh, the, the the central um, content of my argument, which is which is economics but I will try to put things in as simple terms as possible. The credit subsidy results from government intervention in credit markets. The government has the power to allocate credit to favoured sectors and charge lower interest rates than the market would apply. Of course, there aren't interest rates in Iran. There aren't interest rates in Islamic banking. There are interest rates in inverted commas. Okay, there are measures and methods for working out what the interest rate would be for a transaction and somehow making the calculation equivalent to uh, having an interest rate being paid or charged. Um, one of the main consumers of credit is the government itself. Another is the parastatal sector that we've talked about, the bonyards and the guards and the organizations associated with them. Two Iranian economists in the United States, Esfahani and Poor, have estimated the size of the credit subsidy for the period from 1963, that's under the old regime, until 1997. They examine the difference between the change in government debt and the budget deficit. We would expect the, budget de- the domestic debt of a country to increase by the amount of the budget deficit in any year. If the budget deficit is financed by foreign borrowing, then the increase in domestic debt will be less than the budget deficit. But Iran has borrowed little in recent years and has adopted a rather mercantilist policy of avoiding reliance on foreign credit markets. Um, Now, the two writers that I refer to have found that since 1979, the increase in the debt was much larger than the budget deficit would explain. Because of usury laws, there are no estimates of free market interest rates since 1979. And there's very little information available on the volume of loans from the banking system and the interest rates charged, or what I called before, the implicit interest rates under the Islamic system. These writers, therefore, calculated the free market interest rate in order to estimate the size of the credit subsidy. They assumed a 3% interest rate, real interest rate, and added it to the rate of inflation. The subsidy component of credit, directed by the government, is assumed to be two-thirds of this nominal interest rate. The volume of credit to which this subsidy applies is the total debt of the government, public enterprises, and the private sector to the banking system. Okay. To put all that into its bottom line, the subsidy for credit was estimated at 1.3% of GDP in the 1960s at 3.8% in the 1980s and 13.5% since then. The total subsidy in 1997, the total subsidy in the credit market, in the foreign exchange and oil market equaled 30% of GDP. To this should be added subsidies for gas and electricity. So I just want to show you a few tables about uh, some of the subsidies that are um, in existence in Iran. Um, This shows explicit subsidies, allocations of funds in the government budget. And I've taken these figures from the IMF. And you can see that between 2002 and 2007, government spending on subsidies rose considerably. <clears throat> there's a slight fall in 2007, but um, our impression is that since then it's gone up. Now, there's not an exact correspondence to the second uh, line here um, because one is done in, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if this pen will, will reach, the top line. This doesn't help, but the top line is 2002-03 and the the middle line is 2002-03, that's the Iranian year. And these are subsidies paid through the consumer and producer protection organization. And the third kind of explicit subsidy for which we have clear official information is the implied gasoline import subsidy. As you probably know, Iran is short of uh, gas for its cars and so on. And the government has basically been shelling out funds to buy this stuff from abroad and supply it cheaply to the public. So this has also come into play. And in fact, if we could, we should add up all these figures. But those figures are dwarfed by the hidden subsidies. Um, And these are the subsidies which we economists calculate as revenue that is lost to the economy because of artificially low prices for oil, gas, and electricity. There is some world price for oil, $70 a barrel, whatever it is. And you can derive a price for gas in the same way. It's related to the price of oil. Now, the price of electricity depends on the cost of making electricity in any particular country or state, OK? Um, and you can make a calculation of the cost of electricity production in Iran um, based upon the cost of the inputs. How do you make electricity in Iran? You use oil and coal and gas and so on. So you can calculate what these things would cost, and then you can calculate What is charged? How much does it cost in Iran for electricity? We'll look at that afterwards. And the difference between the costs based on international prices, what economists would say should prevail, and what actually prevails is a hidden benefit. If the American government decides that the price of gas will not reflect $70 a barrel, but will be held at $5 a barrel in order to make life easier for the American driver, consumer, then the American government has got to find the difference from somewhere, okay? And the consequence of charging a very low domestic price are that Americans will drive all over the place and use gas guzzle and all the rest. So this is exactly how it's done in Iran. The prices are held down and the revenue which the government would otherwise get or the economy would otherwise get is lost. And here are some estimates of what's involved. In 2005-6, because of this underpricing or subsidy, implicit subsidy, you have a cost of $41 billion. And that's equivalent to over 20% of the national income And it's a subsidy worth over $2,000 to every family. That last figure is derived by simply dividing the amount by the number of families. It doesn't mean that every family gains that amount, because everybody consumes a different amount of electricity and gas, and not everybody has a car, but the simple average gives you this. Now go on to the last figure, which is not an estimate and not a forecast, that's 2007-8, the subsidy has gone up by 50% to over $60 million. Admittedly, that's only 22% of the national income because there's been a lot of increase in national income due to the rise in oil prices. But the benefit to families has gone up by a substantial amount, to over $3,500. Now, for 2008-09, the IMF makes two calculations, okay? This was a report issued in uh, August 2008, so they made these calculations at least six months before looking at what they expected to happen. And they gave these estimates of between 82 and 134 billion dollars equal to a similar 22% and a much higher 36% of the whole of the national income. Now I don't know which of these figures is true but what I do know um, although I can't prove it is that we are now in 2010 and the figure is rising all the time from everything that we hear. So we have implicit subsidies like this, as well as the explicit ones. Now what does this do to the economy? Here I'm hinting at the sustainability. The IMF has has summarized the impact of energy subsidies in the following way. Cheap energy favors economic development based on energy-intensive technologies resulting in economic structures that may not fully reflect Iran's competitive advantage, and raising the cost of an eventual transition to international energy prices. Subsidies to hydrocarbon-based electricity generation reduce the attractiveness of alternative technologies such as wind and solar. At the consumer level, implicit subsidies result in overconsumption of energy through the substitution effect, at the expense of underconsumption of non-energy products and services, the deadweight loss—this is the real loss of welfare from underpricing of energy—was estimated at one and a half percent of GDP in 2007-8. I have excluded from this the effect of air on air pollution. The damage from air pollution in 2001 was estimated at seven billion dollars. That's mainly um, the effect on people's health. And that is equal to 8.4% of GDP. There's been a debate in the literature about whether this situation doesn't justify the nuclear program. The Iranian government has said we must protect our energy sources, we will run out of oil and gas, and we need a nuclear alternative. And one of the arguments has been that the use of these resources has been exaggerated because the cost, because the price of energy is so low. You can see that you can play these arguments any way that you want. But you can't avoid ultimately doing a proper economic costing and seeing that the policies are not sustainable. Now, another distortion that was prevalent until 2002 was the multiple exchange rate system. There was a large gap between the official exchange rate and the market rate. Those who could buy foreign currency at the official rate and sell it or sell products bought with it at the market rate, could make large and fast profits. It's been estimated that the total foreign exchange subsidy rose from 2.2% of GDP in 1976 to 30% a decade later, and peaked at 32% in 1990, having since then declined and then ended as the exchange rate system was unified. So this distortion has been got rid of by reforming the economy in the way in which uh, conventional economists and the IMF would like. But the effect of having distorted the economy for so many years on such a scale remains something rather like war damage. The war, any war, has ended, but you still have to repair the damage that's been done by former events, events that took place in the past. Now, another uh, form of distortion and intervention, just let me um, give you a picture here of, sorry, the electricity subsidy. The first column, cost to supply, is an indication of um, how much, in reals, it costs to supply a kilowatt hour to the different sectors of the economy. Uh, The residential sector, the public sector, agriculture, industry, commerce, and the average. And then in the next column, you have the price of electricity in 2003. This comes from a World Bank report. And you can see that the residential sector paid about a quarter of the cost. If they pay a quarter of the cost, somebody else has to pick up the tab, and that is the government. Interestingly enough, the figure for agriculture, where the price was 14 reals. Now that is an indication of one of the most interesting features of Iran's political economy. The fact that this regime in contrast to its predecessor, has devoted enormous attention to agriculture. And one of the ways that it's done this is by bringing electricity to the villages and to the small towns and to the rural sector in general and charging very little for it. And the third column, the subsidy, is derived from the other two. Now, another area in which the economy is distorted is through protection, through taxes and restrictions on imports. The way in which we calculate um, this is actually quite complicated, even for economists. There are numerous different calculations. We will just note that if we take Iran, the Middle East and North Africa average the world average, and then East Asia-Pacific, Iran figures as an extremely protected economy. Another way of looking at it is to look at the most favoured nation tariff level on all goods. And this is a measure of um, tariff protection on countries that um, will trade with Iran or the other countries listed here, and you can see that Iran is an extremely protected economy. In other words, on average, if you want to bring goods into Iran, you have to pay a lot of tax. Of course, there are those who don't pay the tax, and they are frequently... Referred to in the Iranian press because they have their own jetties. This word jetties comes up all the time. And these private jetties are basically port facilities in which goods can be brought into Iran by those who have influence and not have to pay the import duties or face the other restrictions. They are those who had access to foreign currency when foreign currency was in short supply, access to credit where credit was in short supply, and then access to the means to import when that was and still is restricted. And of course, those jetties are run by the guards and the organizations that they control. So what we see here is in a sense a dual economy Those who have to obey the law, import through a legal port, pay the custom official the tax, and then sell the good or use it in the productive process, having absorbed the extra cost of the tax, and those that don't. And what we note are the constant complaints from the private sector that they don't have fair access to imports that others do, amongst many other things. Now, it's important to note that Iran today, as it has been for the whole of this uh, last 50 years, is extremely dependent on imports of intermediary goods. Iran's industry uses things that it imports, it adds value to them, It assembles things that are sub-assembled abroad. It reassembles them. It needs inputs from abroad in order for its manufacturing industry to survive. It doesn't manufacture everything from the bottom all the way to the top. It brings in a great deal. Power and wealth is determined by who has access to these valuable assets, import licenses, and so on. And as I say, a system of two economies is emerging, those who are able to and those who are not able to import freely. So we have evidence that the economy is being mismanaged. We see that inflation in Iran is much higher than in other countries in the Middle East, and if we try to narrow that down, to oil exporters with large economies, with large populations, I should say, then we see here that Iranian inflation is far higher than that of any of the other economies that we might want to compare it with. Uh, Comparisons are always of limited value, but um, they are some indication of um, the trends within a region, how other economies with somewhat similar circumstances fair, and Iran seems to have a lot more inflation. There is also evidence that the inflation rate that I just showed, and that showed CPI here, or CP1 here, uh, may actually be much lower, the official rate of inflation much lower than other monetary aggregates would suggest. M1 and M2 are indicators of the money supply, narrowly and broadly defined. And these have risen much more quickly than the official rate of inflation, um, at least until 2007-8, and again in uh, 2009-10. And these, together with other bits of evidence we have, suggest that inflation is probably higher, almost certainly higher, than the official figures indicate. What's the significance of all this? The significance is that the economy is running very, very inefficiently. That there are shortages and misallocations, and these are due to mismanagement. These are due to the vast network of subsidies which misallocates consumption, which uh, misallocates resources, and which encourages consumption of things that uh, they should not. And um, They um, suggest uh, what we know from more informal evidence, from reading the newspapers, that 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 there is something uh, very seriously wrong there. So I haven't mentioned really uh, the the thing which Iran is famous for, and that is oil. And I when I decided um, what I was going to talk about, I thought for once I would avoid talking about oil because I talk about oil a great deal. But there's no getting out of it. Um, One has to talk about oil in the Iranian context. And these figures show the total oil revenues uh, that Iran has earned from its exports in the periods 1995, 1999, in the period 2000, 2004, And in the period 2005, 2009, uh, we're still not sure what 2009 is, but that's probably an estimate. You can see that the amount of oil wealth has increased enormously. Now there's inflation even in dollars. I notice from visits here that prices even in the United States do go up, so the dollar is worth less in dollar terms, and certainly on international markets it's worth less because of the exchange rate, but that doesn't wipe out the fact that Iran has received enormous benefit from increased oil prices. However, this diagram, which is produced by the American Department of Energy, shows that the what has happened is a monetary phenomenon. What has happened in Iran is the, because of prices rather than production. It's Monetary rather than real, as economists would call it. As you can see, the production line, which is the blue line, the top one, collapsed uh, during the revolution and was severely hit by the war between Iraq and Iran. And when that war ended in 1998, there began a slow turnaround, a slow increase, which has lasted with uh, interruptions until today. But Iran still produces significantly less oil than it did under the Shah all these years later. And its exports have fallen even more because consumption has risen whilst production has been constrained. Production is being constrained by largely American sanctions which have prevented Iran getting access to the technology that it needs to repair and maintain its oil fields and also to develop its refining industry and so on. Oil fields, to my surprise when I started studying this, are not just um, fields in which you drill oil. They require investment all the time if when you pull the oil out and the associated gas out, the whole geological structure is not to collapse under the ground. Something which you may or may not notice on the ground as a tourist reading the National Geographical, for example, but if you are an oil engineer or geologist, you will know the damage being done. So oil fields require huge investments just to maintain an existing level of production, not to uh, go further and increase production. That has been missing in Iran. Now, what I've said up to now is fairly gloomy. I've talked about the misallocation of resources. I've talked about the difficulty of um, facing the oil sector, the fact that the improvements in recent years in oil simply derive from prices which are determined internationally. So what's been the fate of the Iranian economy? The, this table and the one that follows hint at something that is of paramount importance in understanding the political economy of Iran. And this is the decline in the rate of poverty that has been experienced since the late 1980s, the early 1990s. Even though in the late 1980s, the government was adopting IMF-like policies, And again, under Khatami, there were attempts at reform towards the type of economy we're more familiar with in the West. The Islamic Republic, its legacy up to now is one of falling levels of poverty. And that is extremely important in order to understand the social contract and the political economy, which I referred to at the beginning of my lecture. So these are poverty rates. There's a lot of controversy about this. I'm not 100% sure that these figures are accurate, but if these figures are right, then they do match some of the reality that we see, and that is that there is some support for this regime, despite what um, many people in the United States and in other countries would like to happen. Um, Maybe uh, the regime has a considerable backing in Iran. This figure is a little bit more complicated to understand because the trend is not so clear, but what it shows is that there's been a reduction in the level of inequality in the distribution of expenditure at the household level in urban, rural, and all Iran. Now, what households spend is a function simply of their income and their savings. But their savings are based upon their earnings. So we can interpret household expenditure as a measure of income, an indirect measure of the outcome of income. And if we say that household expenditures have become less unequal, then we see another source of um, the social contract. The regime spends all this money on subsidies, which we Western economists condemn as being very inefficient and wasteful, and we saw the results. But this is the social side of it. This is why they do it. Because it has reduced poverty, and it has reduced inequality, which sounds to say that Inequality has been reduced when you see what's going on on the streets of Tehran is is strange. Because there are very clearly very big gaps between North Tehran and South Tehran. And those gaps have always existed. And that's the point. Those gaps have always existed. But when we look at the statistical measures, if they're accurate, there is evidence that they have declined. Not that they've been abolished, but that they have declined. I want to um, now draw to a conclusion. Uh, In 2003, the World Bank stated that Iran had a high level of unemployment at 16%. More worrisome was the explosive growth of the labor supply in Iran, which is increasing by 5% a year, and driven by a demographic bulge that could be traced to the higher fertility in the early 1980s. Even when the demographic hump passes, this growth in labor supply will be sustained by the rising participation rate of women. To meet the flow of new job seekers and make a dent in the stock of unemployment, Iran must sustain a much higher GDP growth rate, at least 8% a year. This will require about 10% of GDP in additional Investment, And this can only be provided by the private sector, according to the IMF. What's the recent growth experience been? In 2000-2004, the economy grew by 5.7%. In 2005-2008, you may remember from the graph of the oil, this was the period of the enormous growth of oil revenues, the growth rate slowed to 5.2%. What are the unemployment rates that we have? The official unemployment rate increased between 2008 and the first three quarters of 2009 from 10.3% to 11.6%. But the unemployment rates that are issued by the government are rather like the inflation rate. There's a very strong feeling amongst many people in Iran and outside that these rates are actually much, much higher higher in reality. So a few figures, tables, on the issue of um, the labor supply, this vast number of people coming onto the labor market who will need jobs. This table, which is a complicated one to interpret, shows the numbers coming above the line, above the zero, the numbers coming in millions onto the labor market and how they're increasing in recent years. And the forecast is that this will turn round, this will slow down, but as we'll see in a moment, uh, we're not sure that these forecasts are quite right. Another table shows the growth of employment in millions, the yellow bars, which has grown because of the growth of bureaucracy, because of the growth of the economy, and there apparently was a decline in unemployment, but that's the, that's the blue bar is the unemployment in percentage terms. But there are question marks about the real level of uh, unemployment, and this of course is an official rate. What about the structure of the population, this large, young population? Here I've tried to compare West Asia which is a large number of countries from the Mediterranean coast inland as far as Iran, with Iran, and then there's the United States and Western Europe. And we can see that in Iran, 44.5% of the population estimated for this year is aged 0 to 24 years. Now that is better, better in inverted commas, than the West Asia total, which is over 50%. Better should be, in inverted commas, at least once. What's the figure in the United States? 34%. Not bad. And what's the figure in Western Europe? 31%. Now, these figures show that the Iranian population is young. Not as young as West Asia, but younger than the United States. And... uh, much younger than in Western Europe. Youth is usually considered a good thing, even by economists who are representatives of what's called the dismal science. Um, But a number of social scientists have drawn attention to the dangers of having very large, young populations, such as that in Iran and in other parts of the Middle East. The most famous of these is uh, Jack Goldstone, who's written extensively on the correlation between age structure and revolution, going right back to the uh, English Civil War and Revolution of the 17th century. Uh, And I, I don't want to say that Iran is in trouble or will be in trouble because the population is young, but having a young population poses tremendous challenges to any society. So let me conclude and go back to the social contract. If there was a social contract, then it has buckled to the point of breaking apart under the weight of its own contradictions, if you allow me to use a rather Marxist phrase. I don't know what will follow, but I can say this. If this regime or its successor does not change economic policy quite drastically, then Iran will continue to suffer extreme economic instability for many years to come. However, as I have suggested, the current regime in Iran has redistributed resources to the poor, especially the rural poor, and this provides them with an important source of support at the political level. Making radical changes will be politically dangerous. Avoiding them will be economically disastrous. Thank you very much. Go ahead. If I can, I'll be glad to answer some questions. I don't want to be facetious, but I can't explain it, because I think there's a contradiction. You you put it right. There are favored groups who have been the backbone of the regime in the guards and the bonyards and so on. There's a big overlap between these two worlds. And um, they were favored, and they are favored. They were favored because they were protecting the regime. They're now favored because they are the regime in a sense, uh, but all that requires a wider level of support amongst, the, amongst elements of the public, including the poor, for whom, in some sense, the, exam, the Islamic revolution came into existence. That was Khomeini's, uh, part of his platform was to to help the poor, to put it in Western terms, and there's a contradiction here, and the contradiction Um, is manifesting itself in economic breakdown. I mean, uh, just um, prior to this class, a couple of us were talking about the fact that the banks are in deep trouble. And this is uh, perhaps because the government has overloaded them with too many tasks to lend money at favorable terms to favored groups and at the same time to finance the government's overspending. And it probably can't be all done. But the problem for me is, as an economist or a macroeconomist, I don't have, by definition, I don't have a clear picture. I have all these stories coming in, and I hear what you say. Uh, I read what you say about bribes and corruption and jetties and all this. Um, But I don't have a a macroeconomic picture of the whole thing with, with all the numbers. And I don't think we're going to get one. Yeah. Why not they direct the resources to doing that because of the of Yeah. I don't think the problem is so much that they haven't directed resources there. The problem is that they have not had access to the best equipment that is available on the world market for maintaining oil fields, gas fields, and refineries, largely because of the United States and other, let's call it, restrictions on trading with Iran. If they could get this equipment, they would buy it. To the extent that they can get it from other sources, they do, and they invest it. And so they are able to produce a fair amount of oil, but it's not optimal. Uh, and the other thing that is rampant there is mismanagement, um, vast bureaucracy, the relationship between government departments and the oil company. Oil companies in the Middle East are usually very powerful things which governments want to control or they don't want to control. Is its it? Is it um, you know, the uh, the goose that, go- that lays the golden egg which you must look after, and how do you look after it? By politicizing it or not politicizing it? And you have a whole range of issues there to do with mismanagement. So you can blame it on mismanagement and you can blame it on sanctions. Uh, in recent years, it's not really been a, a shortage of funds. I think in 2008, the, uh, the IMF, IMF issued a report, or two reports, which said that if the oil price falls below $75 a barrel, Iran is in difficulty, OK? At the levels of spending that were then prevailing. Well, where are we? Just a bit below that. And, and what do we see? A, a, a stacking up of problems. So there, there is great sensitivity. Um, it's ironic that they've got into such a mess following this period of five years of of, of rising oil wealth. Now they created a, an oil stabilization fund along the model of Norway and other countries which put money aside for a rainy day. You don't spend all your oil wealth, right? Like Like you should and I should. If we get some extra money we should Perhaps put it aside for the day when something goes wrong. You know, it's a sensible budgetary policy. It would seem that that fund is being itself misused and drained into the budget.
0: Um, on the same topic, Ahmadinejad, I think it was in 2008 or 2007, made the estimate um, government estimates were made based on oil prices being at 50 to $60 a barrel. Yeah. Um, and, you know, shot up to 110 100 yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Go into that rainy day fund to a certain extent. Is there any indication of where that all that additional
1: money has, has gone? Uh, there, the, the, the the IMF has published information on the use of the fund of the oil stabilization fund until around 2007, um, and and the figures that you know cover 2008 and when the when the oil price was really rising are, are estimates made before, and we really we we really don't, I mean, that that's not very useful. So the answer to that is, I don't know. Maybe maybe somebody else does, but I haven't seen the figures and I, I look for them. <laughs> Please. Uh, the, the the currency, the real currency, is not completely open, the government still controls it. Is the current exchange rate is what the market uh, sort of
0: uh, establishes or is it the government? And it seems like over the last, Five ten years, the rate of inflation in Iran has been pretty high, but the rate of exchange
1: between, the, say, dollar and rial, did not change according to the inflation. Yeah. So how was yeah. that maintained, and, and what, and what's the impact on the internal economy? Uh, in no. Yeah. Well, there there are lo- there are a lot a lot of things that that c- can go wrong that need to be said about that. If if the if the inflation rate is high and the exchange rate doesn't adjust, then the economy loses competitiveness, and it becomes harder to sell Iranian goods abroad. However, uh, most of what Iran sells abroad is oil, priced in dollars, so that isn't really affected by the exchange rate. It's really the supply and demand of prices are, the demand, uh, the international supply, and the price is determined abroad. But for other products, to the extent that they are competing, uh, with, with other countries, and there is an element of that, and there should be more in an industrializing economy, then um, the wrong exchange rate, uh, presumably an exchange rate that is too high and needs devaluing, is, is damaging. Now, why do you get this? Why is it possible? Because, formally speaking, the balance of payments is in surplus on current account because of the oil revenues. Okay, If a country has a lot of money coming in and it's spending less abroad, then it's accumulating wealth. Its, it's, it's, it's exchange rate is is um, seemingly strong. It doesn't need devaluing because the, the, the thing that you're trying to correct with a devaluation, which would normally be the balance of payments, is already strong. And that's another phenomenon which you get, which is sometimes problematic for economics textbooks, that... Um, uh, you know, the balance of payments can be strong, but the exchange rate ne- isn't necessarily what economists would call optimal or equilibrium level. I think that the, I- I'm not quite sure how to define the exchange rate regime then. they brought all these rates of exchange together and unified the system to reduce the vast distortions in 2002. It was a, a process that took some years and they did what we economists would call a very good job of that and have established a much more rational system in which there is seemingly one exchange rate. But the question you rightly ask is how is that rate actually determined and if it's not determined properly then other rates will arise. Well in a sense it's it gets very complicated because what I'm hinting at before is that a whole parallel economy has arisen. Okay? With or without that exchange rate, there's a whole another economy that operates outside the law that is part of the state. okay, And how important the exchange rate in that. It's not so important. The main thing is to have the allocation of funds and to be able to bring the goods in. You don't pay the tax, so it's 25% cheaper, let's say. So the exchange rate is 10% out. It doesn't matter. And that's really what will determine quantities in the marketplace. Uh, that's an imperfect answer, I, I realize. Please. What would be the effect of the
0: devaluation of the about?
1: Well, if you devalue the rial, then the price of all things that are imported into Iran would go up which they obviously don't want because they've got problems of inflation already. But they don't, it would also make Iranian exports cheaper abroad. But they don't need to do that because it's easy to sell Iranian oil at the moment. And if it becomes difficult to sell Iranian oil, it's not because of the prices being wrong, the prices determined internationally. The problem would be that the world community is not buying Iranian oil. So there isn't, in a sense, any need for devaluation but then, as you suggest, you know, all the prices are wrong.
0: I know in your first graph, you were, like, you showed the rise in the bureaucracy. Yeah. And then you mentioned, I believe, it was 8.7% uh, economic growth that they would have to um, sustain to give jobs to those people coming into the labor force. Um, now, the bureaucracy is separate from the state of the enterprise. Are you
1: it depends. Of it depends how you define it. It it depends how you define it. But what you but I guess what you're saying is the private sector will have
0: to grow in order to take in the labor fields.
1: That is what the IMF and the World Bank say. Yes.
0: But Iran could also just start its um other state owned enterprises as well to make up the the
1: Yeah, well, yeah. What you're saying is you could have a, a growing economy and new industries and so on developed by the public sector. Yeah? Yeah, expand it. Yeah, you could. Yeah. The IMF wouldn't like it, but I agree it could be done. It could be done if the managerial talents and the organizational administrative apparatus would permit it. And that is where I, I think Iran is not short of talent. It's not short of people who can do things. But there is an unbelievable bureau- political bureaucratic apparatus that weighs everything down. That, in a sense, without being too explicit because they're diplomatic, the IMF is saying, leave it to the private sector. Leave it to the private sector. Because ultimately, you know, markets will determine what things should be done more efficiently than government bureaucracies, especially when you've got such a bureaucratic mess as you have in Iran. estimate of the impact of the three sanctions on the Iranian economy,
0: and as well as the projected sanctions that they be imposed in the future. And second question, uh, do you have an estimate of the cost of the um, uh, nuclear missile program on the Iranian
1: economy? Yeah. Okay, to answer the second one quickly, there is an estimate that has been produced by the American government, and when I asked if I could see it, They wrote back and said, how do you even know that it exists? So I kind of felt my computer a little bit burning there, you know. I thought I'd better leave that one. It does exist, yes. I don't know how good it is. It's a little old, but it exists. But not in the public sphere, no. Um, But I think that there are a number of people outside the government in the United States who are looking at that. And we're talking about very big amounts of money. Now, to to the question of sanctions, there are some estimates about the impact of what sanctions there have been. And there are some estimates of what the impact of more intense, wider, deeper sanctions could be. Um, And then, of course, there's an enormous literature about why one should not apply sanctions. There seems to me that is where the, the literature is going, that how crazy it is to apply sanctions and, uh, and some um, serious economists who are not over political on this also say it doesn't work, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Okay. I, uh, I don't want to get into what I think about that in, in, in public. I'd be happy to talk outside this room on that. But I don't want to advocate anything.
0: Unfortunately, we uh, have to give the building, uh, the room
1: up to, uh Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.